Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. A few updates worth mentioning. The first thing is that the Barney Dicker approved Louisville Plains monthly meeting. I've just got to say, I really like this. Now we've got the four active participants. Uh, David Sermon uh, started participating most recently. And I've got to say, I sent him an email. He hasn't responded to the email. No one ever responds to email anymore. But he mentioned psychogeography, which is something that I'm an active financial sponsor of in some regard. So I wanted to know if he used the term based on John Rogers' work, which is the part that I actively track and give a little bit of money to monthly, uh, because it's such an interesting term and it's something that I've based, well, not really, my simulations came along before psychogeography, but it's funny that the, well, it didn't come along before traditional psychogeography, but before I found out about psychogeography. And it's one of these things where you find someone, you're like, that's exactly what I've been simulating. It's a bit like Terence McKenna. You know, Terence McKenna started talking about how it wasn't until monkeys encountered mushrooms that they really started, you know, brain evolution, a wide variety of other efforts. But once I heard McKenna, I'm like, hmm, this guy's basically saying what I've been working on for 20 years. I feel the same way associated with John Rogers and the other psychogeographers. So I wanted to get a sense if uh, David knew of the work or, I don't know, maybe psychogeography has just become a popular term in, in London now. So anyway, I asked him that question. But yeah, a really nice group of uh, gentlemen, and I'm hoping more people will actually play the game, like actually run games, opposed to Barney Dicker having to shoulder the weight. And I got a lot out of actually running a game of Alluvial Plains, and it gave me a lot of critical feedback, which I'm still giving. (laughs) Oh my goodness, long-suffering friendship. Anyway, so that was just really wonderful, and I think it's an ongoing process. I don't know when we'll actually get to, to publish this thing. But the ability to get together with a a group of folks and kind of jam on this topic, which I have a precursory set of interests in, is just really wonderful. And I don't say this kind of stuff enough in this podcast, so I thought I should probably start the podcast by saying that. Sometime in the past two months, I bought a Space Orc Army, original generation, or maybe Rogue Trader plus one generation army. A lot of Space Orcs with plastic arms and things like that. And as is my habit, I parceled up what interested me and I think what certainly Rochi Rochi could use for his own development and sent it off to Rochi and he's coming to the conclusion of the Space Orc Army. One of the things that I wanted to do, and I'm trying to remember the time frames, it was the time that we were in Southern California. Like most lead addicts, I can't actually recall when I got the army, but I got it to Rochi Rochford and he's been able to paint a vast majority of it. Part of it is taking the modern Games Workshop plastic floating tanks that the space marines use and orcifying them it's a very strange kind of i don't know small orc army like they're not the big gargantuan orc so they were going to throw one of those in as a boss but really it's you know just a bunch of really eclectic orcs there's a i think there's a series of weird boys and a mad boy or something like that there's there's some relationships which i'd probably need to go back to the original text and review but there's a lot of dudes with the propensity to cut people up or cut other orcs up. Anyway, so there's a lot of really crazy and eclectic figures through the range, which is what drew me to the army. But I wanted to do something to kind of juxtapose that, which was to make modern, well, the current generation of Games Workshop, you know, floating space marine tanks, Primaris, etc. And just take these orcs' perspective on that thing. And it's actually quite interesting, the combination of simplicity with regards to the paint jobs, 
the complexity with regards to the tech and technical interest. And in parallel to this, I unpacked a box of Fred Reed miniatures from about 14 years ago that I kept in literally um, peanuts, foam peanuts, because they were just so brittle and so breakable. And I thought somewhere through this period of moves, I'm going to be in a place where I can unpack these things and repack them in foam. So I've had this vision of incredibly vibrant Fred Reed painted figures, literally unblemished through time, uh, which my wife actually noted because I have them actually in a section of my glass shelving in my podcasting room. And I think sometime, I don't know, in the next two to four months, I'm going to be packing them into foam. But in parallel to this, I've been using KR Multicases now for about, I don't know, 12 plus years. And I've contacted them with each purchase I've made, except the most recent one, because I just couldn't be bothered. And they have a list of podcasts that are in this domain, mainly, you know, 40K podcasts or these kind of things. And I don't really get a sense of how frequent these podcasts come out. But as a long-term supporter of KR Multicases, in fact, it's aside from a small number, maybe a dozen Games Workshop you know, plastic tank figure cases. All my other figure cases are KR multi-cases. I prefer the aluminum ones. See, me speaking like a Yankee. I prefer the aluminum ones. Uh, but I do have a number of the cardboard ones as well. And I use the cardboard ones actually to ship figures around typically now uh, because they're just so versatile and they give an additional cardboard wall of protection in addition to the box that you're sending the, the figures in. KR multi-cases are now KR cases i don't think we'll ever have this podcast on this just too eclectic or maybe they just can't be bothered but i really don't like what they're doing currently i think they've eliminated the aluminum cases or they're slowly reducing the aluminum cases which are my favorite cases and instead they're putting together cardboard cases or more of the cardboard cases and now means of holding paint brushes and things like that i mean you know, I'm just a volume figure guy, and I need volume figure cases. So, anyway, nothing remains constant, that's for sure. I wanted to give a brief update associated with the miniature company, just because there's, there are slight issues with it, and mainly associated just with the generation of artwork and direction. In parallel to this, I also saw on one of the many old hammer groups I'm a part of, a postcard from Kev Adams who is basically the creator of all the orcs and goblins and Gaines Workshop up until a point, and also created a lot of the Chaos figures, the Chaos Renegade figures that I really like. Anyway, he notes that he very rarely drew in his professional life in this postcard. And I think what I need to do is move the drawing to be secondary and move the actual figure creation to be primary. And that will change the direction of this thing, but also, I think, make it a lot more, I don't know, just beneficial to all concerned. And I had started, I talked about the weird World War One figures. They have proven time-consuming and problematic in a few different areas. So my thought was, well, why don't we just generate, like, strange, chaosy regiments to start off with to see, like, can we make this thing fun? And in doing that, the drawing process of it has been really difficult and just kind of laboured. And in contrast to the other aspects of this thing, just something that I've just has been, I don't know, a delaying factor, basically. And clearly, the people that are responsible for this stuff are not having the fun that they originally hoped they'd have. 
I really feel that emotion come through this whole thing. So I think we might move to just making sculpting primary and the drawing secondary with the view that once you have sculpting and then you have, you know, the mold making and the actual output, you can then paint the figures and use that as the means of showing what is done rather than the drawing, which just seems to be quite laborious and just not moving in the right direction. I think there's a creative process associated with actually holding the putty and these kind of things and carving the putty, which drawing just doesn't give. So this is a, not necessarily a restart, but just something that I'm looking at in terms of how we can get the output. The aim is to have a Kickstarter by the end of the year and really we're in the kind of will this happen phase currently. So I can't talk positively about, yes, definitely these figures will be coming out and what have you in the current phase because we're still exploring the space as a means of just, you know, whether or not we have the kind of creative group that's necessary for this. There is potential to bring in others, but as things are currently, I just would like to see something more come out of this. So it's difficult in a kind of assessing managerial funding role (laughs) to make these kind of decisions, but it just needs to be right. And also I'm looking at Barney Dicker. I mean, having, you know, heading it a to and fro uh, with Barney associated with actually like producing, I do like the process with the stuff that Barney's doing currently with alluvial planes. So I can't, I've got to, I, I should take a step back with this as well and just say, now I'm more in the process. I feel that the process is more productive in a variety of different ways with the Barney Dicker stuff. So what I want to do is bring that same thing, which may be, let's not pressurize for getting a Kickstarter out by the end of the year or February or whenever the Kickstarter will come. Just maybe get into the play process initially and see what we can produce through that. And I think the idea of like themes and elements, and I've been going back through early mid eighties, Citadel miniatures catalogs and just getting a sense of their fermenting process with the view that I wanted to do something similar. So that's the update on that. I've gone into a bit of a quandary with the girls specifically, having had these these children now, that I'm really not interested in violence anymore. <laughs> like any way, I've talked about this historically. I don't even know what happened to it, whether it's in Barney Dicker's podcast or my podcast. It's somewhere where I talk about what the, the killing the MGM shooter scenario in Las Vegas and how it impacted my sisters-in-law and, Ultimately, they're friends as well, friends that I I know of theirs. And it changed my perspective with regards to some of my writing. Having girls has done that even more so. And I find myself particularly, I used to watch Daisy, the video game, uh, you know, videos on YouTube. And now I watch it, I'm just like, this passiveness with firearms, you know, you just observe this thing. And I mean, even when I lived in San Jose, and there were drive-bys and things like this. And, you know, I was part of a community organization that did you know, focus meetings with the police and the mayor and these kind of folk. It didn't really emotionally impact me as much as actually holding little girls in my hands, my little girls, and getting a sense of how their trajectory will be would be impacted so horribly. I mean, this is the kind of clinical way I still talk about it. But just the nature that I really... Any kind of descriptive form of violence is, is now really rubbing against me in a very strange way. And I think a lot of the games that I was working on, a lot of the ideas that I was trying to cultivate, particularly the follow-on from Britannia, were really more about you know descriptive life trajectories. 
rather than being about, you know, hack and slash and killing and all this kind of stuff. It was more about how could people kind of productively live in these kind of environments and exploring that more than knife blows and other, you know, things, shields and death around the corner and every turn kind of stuff. But now as a parent and a parent who spends a good portion of my day, although I'm going back to work, but still a portion of my day with my daughters and just seeing them, seeing them evolve and change dramatically in the whole, you know, emergence of the human from the infant and this kind of stuff just makes me think that, I don't know, it, it's certainly changing my perspective. And I think it'll probably change whatever comes through this. I still have a really profound interest in deep fantasy and a profound interest in, you know, a lot of the, like I talk about with the projected releases, you know, trying to capture a kind of collision of ideas, which ultimately is very barbaric and horrific, but at the same time, just so elaborately creative. So that sort of stuff, again, more in a fantasy light, it's interesting. More fantasy than futurism. But that stuff is still okay with me. But contemporary weapons and post-contemporary weapons that are just designed for, you know, rapid killing and this kind of stuff, I don't know. My, my whole mindset has changed. And it's something which has happened relatively rapidly. I've only really seen a repugnance towards violent video games in the past month and a bit. It's just something that's caught me where I'm just like, you know, I like the roaming through the wilderness aspect, certainly that you get in a variety of different DayZ settings. But the, you know, the rapid killing and the fade to black and all this other kind of stuff, I'm just like, why can't it be more about adventuring and discovery than it is about killing people? Anyway, an afterthought for the conclusion of the podcast recording. Tom Barbelay in Las Vegas, Nevada, signing out.